Welcome to The Breakdown with Bradcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. We are here tonight with our third live stream of The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. We are kicking off this panel at 8.30 Central on January 23rd, just as an hour or so after polls have closed in the New Hampshire presidential primary. We are joined tonight by two of our regular panelists when it comes to all things regarding the Republican presidential race, Representative Walter Hudson and John Rouleau. For those who have not heard one of our panels before, a quick introduction to these two gentlemen. Representative Walter Hudson is in his first term in the Minnesota House and represents the Albertville, Otsego, and St. Michael area. John Rouleau has long been active in Republican politics and currently serves as the executive director of the Minnesota Jobs Coalition. We are also joined by two Democrats to even out our panel tonight, Susie Lewis and former state representative Ryan Winkler. We are excited to welcome Susie. Um, Susie is one of the national volunteer coordinators for the Dean Phillips campaign and has known Congressman Phillips uh, since he was born. Former Representative Ryan Winkler is joining us for the second time on our podcast. He has served two stints in the Minnesota House of Representatives, first from 2007 to 2015 and the latter 2019 to 2022. So tonight we are going to break down the New Hampshire results on both sides of the aisle. We will start by breaking down the results for Democrats and how Minnesota's own Dean Phillips performed. Then we will get into the results for the Republican side and find out if Michael and I were once again correct with our predictions. We will also break down what these results mean for the contest or for the contest, both Republicans and Democrats, and if anyone performed well enough to battle on for the coming weeks. And we'll end with chatting through a little bit of the exit polls. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the mm-hmm. show. So I want to start out with you, uh, Representative Winkler. <clears throat> polls are in. Obviously, there are a lot of um, uh, things to process on the Democrat side. We broke down a little bit in our preview episode about how um, President Joe Biden is was not actually on the ballot in um, in New Hampshire because of the way the DNC and the Biden campaign decided to go about going to South Carolina and wanting that to be first in the nation. Um, so he was precluded from being on that ballot. Um, at about 810 was the last time I... I put my notes down, 40% or so reporting, 68% of those were write-in, unprocessed write-in so far. It was standing at 68% unprocessed write-ins, 20% Phillips, 5% Biden. What's your take looking into or coming into tonight? Is this about what you expected? Did you expect Biden to have such a big surge on the write-in ballot or was that to be expected? I think the results are fairly predictable. Uh, There was really only one candidate who was running in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, Biden, I think, had some surrogate work going on, obviously. And it's never easy to get uh, 80% of people to write in your name on a ballot, even if you're the incumbent president. Uh, But I do think that shows a lot of strength in the Democratic Party for reelecting President Biden. Obviously, 20% is not a a negligible number. It's a significant number, Um, but it isn't really representative of what happens in a state when both candidates are on the ballot and there's actually an active campaign. DNC rules actually prevent Biden from even campaigning actively in New Hampshire. So there are a lot of limits on what he could do because they're trying to elevate South Carolina as the first in the nation. So there's no real surprise here, and I don't think it has likely to have much impact on the primary states or caucuses going forward. Now, Susie, you have been, you've known Congressman Phillips for 
decades. You've been working with his campaign in some capacity or another um, for the last, I think you said, six or seven years. Um, can you speak a little bit to us about uh, Congressman Phillips really went uh, hard for New Hampshire? Obviously, that's showing with 20% of the votes so far. Um, can you speak a little bit about the strategy there and what you guys heard from voters in the mm -hmm. in the in, in New Hampshire? Yeah. Um, Dean's goal was to get to 20%. Being, you know, he's pretty realistic, and he he wanted twenty percent at least, and he with forty percent in, he's at twenty percent, and we wanted that's what he wanted to go forward to just make a statement because really nobody knew who knows who he is nationally. We all know him from Minnesota, and um, <clears throat> excuse me. So he he's going to probably be. This is me, a volunteer. I'm not representing Dean or the campaign, so I just need to clear lay out that disclaimer. Because I might say something that could get me in trouble. I'm going to, uh, so it's just me. Um, and um, I think that Dean will be happy. Dean is staying in the race. He's in, in 30, he's in at least 32, I believe, primaries around the country, uh, maybe more. Um, and he, people didn't know him. He launched October 27th in New Hampshire. Um, nobody knew who he was. We, I was in New Hampshire twice. We, you know, there'd be five people and it moved up to a hundred people. So, you know, he's doing this really grassroots, just beginning to, um, the capture, uh, the young people are gathering fast towards, uh, Congressman Phillips because they're disenchanted and they're not going to, we, we, that's the whole purpose, as you know, is our, same purpose as, uh, as President Biden's people have, and I get it, and I, I was there for a long time until I got so scared that uh, President Biden cannot win. So this is really people and independents scared for that, and Dean is putting himself out there. He didn't want to. He wanted others to, um, to do that, and he is doing it as a Democrat in primaries, not the general. So... He, he'll be, I think he'll be satisfied. I am at that number. Yeah. Thank you. Now, we actually had the privilege of speaking to Congressman Phillips the day after he launched his presidential bid. And he did make it very clear then and within a, in, in other interviews that we saw that this was really, he was asking somebody else to step up. Somebody get in the race. We we need competition. We need conversation. We want to do this when nobody else did that. You know, he certainly did step into that. Um, Representative Hudson, as somebody who has, you know, obviously watched the, the Washington delegation from here in Minnesota, seeing Congressman Phillips in the congressional level and now as a presidential candidate, what's your take on how he performed tonight in New Hampshire, um, especially, again, being relatively unknown for a lot of those folks up until about five or six months ago? I think it's fairly impressive. I mean, especially coming into the state as a, a relative unknown um, to get that type of percentage as a, and I don't know what it speaks more to his potential strength as a candidate or just the overwhelming concern um, that Democrat voters seem to have about the reelectability um, of Joe Biden. Um, but, but I am, and maybe we're going to pivot to this at some point. So if I'm jumping the gun, I apologize for that. Uh, I do find it interesting that he seems to be kind of playing footsie with this idea of either going no labels or running some sort of third party run or, and kind of doing this outreach to, to MAGA or whatever it is that he's been doing recently. I do not understand what all that is about or what he's hoping to accomplish. 
um, in that regard. But there's there's certainly something going on within the Democrat Party uh, where th- they're showing their lack of confidence in um, their incumbent president for reasons that are entirely objective and rational. Um, and the only person who's really providing them with a viable alternative, it seems at this point, um, or close to a viable alternative would be Dean Phillips. Uh, Susie, did you? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I can clarify because I heard him in a town hall last night um, and he explained his no labels thing and what everybody's talking about. And what he explained was that he will not be running in for in new labels for the election. And he likes new labels and talks to them and maybe someday he will. But we're talking about 2024 Um, and maybe something else will happen in the future. He said if they put anybody up, they would put up a Republican to take votes away from Donald Trump. And he's not that Republican. And so what he said last night was, I will not be that candidate. Uh, this this year did not rule out third party or something else in the future. And um, they if, if, the, if Donald Trump's numbers keep looking really good and, and President Biden's keep looking really bad, they really have toyed with and thought about if we can find a Republican to take votes away from Donald Trump, they would want that person to run. Well, you guys beat me to it. I did have that, um, you know, recent conversation he had with oh, the Star Tribune. Uh, Claire, no, 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 no. That's this is what we're looking for—the freewheeling kind of conversation. Because you know, it was certainly—I don't think anybody was. I wasn't surprised to see that um, article over the weekend where he, you know, his comments with the Star Tribune kind of implied that he was open to that. Um, it, it, you know, he has since, like you said, Susie, come back and clarified those statements uh, that that is not something he is looking at in this 2024 but I think time will tell because we are seeing a lot of things, you know, I, this is maybe a conversation a little bit for for another time, but we have been seeing a lot of different conversations about whether it's Michelle Obama that steps up or another Democrat that might actually step up because, you know, there's just similar to on the Republican side, you know, myself and Michael and, and maybe some of the others, I'll, I'll let them speak for themselves, are not necessarily supportive of Trump being our nominee. There are certainly some concerns with Biden being the, the nominee for some Democrats as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, John, I want to ask you uh, your take from all of this. Obviously, again, you know, Biden wasn't on the ballot is receiving a significant uh, number of votes, a write-in campaign, very impressive. What's your take on that? No, I think, you know, anytime that somebody steps into the arena and puts their name on the ballot, I think that's something that we should applaud. And, uh, you know, that's really what America is about. Uh, I'm not surprised uh, that President Biden did very well, had a strong showing tonight. Uh, You know, consistently what we see is that President Biden is popular amongst Democrats and uh, former President Trump is very popular amongst Republicans. Uh, and to the extent that there is kind of that, you know, disillusion, uh, you know, folks looking and kind of thinking, are these our two options? Most of that tends to come from kind of those unaffiliated voters, the voters in the middle, uh, who, you know, their politics is exhausting, uh, especially in the 24-hour news cycle when uh, all that we're getting nonstop for the last, you know, seven years is uh, negative stories, uh, whether it was President Trump in office or uh, whether it's President Biden in the office. I think the country is exhausted, and I think that's understandable. Uh, but both of those folks have very strong support uh, within their own respective parties. Uh, and I think, you know, the other uh, the other piece at play in this is that 
with the rules in New Hampshire, with unaffiliated voters being able to decide on election day which ballot they want to pull, Governor Haley and Congressman Phillips were both courting those voters. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's only so many likely voting unaffiliated voters uh, for them to capture amongst themselves. Uh, so that, you know, I think provided headwinds for both of them and that they you know, ran very similar strategies, albeit uh, for different partisan uh, you know, nominations. But uh, yeah, I think, like I said, uh, anybody who puts their name on the ballot, I think is to be commended. And, uh, you know, Congressman Phillips, I'm sure, uh, is pleased with, uh, you know, having a respectable showing. Uh, but yeah, I don't know that, uh, I see a whole lot of a uh, path forward for him here, uh, beyond maybe starting a conversation. Absolutely. Any any last comments here on the Democrat results before we move over to the Republican side? I just don't think there's really any news here. An incumbent president shows a strong support from his party, is uh, ready to go into the election season, supported by Democrats, and uh, New Hampshire was really kind of a no-news primary this year. I agree. You know, I think from my, I don't have a ton to add on what anybody else has said. I do think, you know, Phillips has performed well. Um, but in light of that, I think the writing campaign and the support behind President Biden is really significant and, and, and very telling. You know, like I said, there has been, you know, you hear the whisper campaigns of folks looking elsewhere. Um, it is it is clear with this that um, it is a very significant backing that he received in New Hampshire in the right inside of things. So Here's to uh, President Biden. On the Republican side, I do want to start out with um, a, a, an update. You know, we re we recorded a, a preview of the New Hampshire primary on Friday. Um, between Friday and today, one of the the, uh, the top three candidates for the Republican nomination, uh, Ron DeSantis, did drop out of the race, um, still on the ballot. Um, but that was something that, uh, you know, as of Five days ago, none of us, I think, really, I think we were expecting that he was going to see it through to New Hampshire at this time. Um, Representative Hudson, I want to start with you and your just general takes on, uh, um, sorry, on Governor DeSantis dropping out um, just days before the primary. Well, I mean, it seems as though what I was speculating the last time we were together and chatting was indicative of conversations that were happening within the DeSantis campaign, because I just didn't see any point in continuing after Iowa um, for all the reasons that have been previously articulated that he needed to hit a certain mark um, in order to make his mark and justify remaining in the race. He threw literally everything at Iowa and he had all of the support that you could possibly ask for um, from the, the political luminaries in that state and still wasn't, was barely able to do better than Nikki Haley. Um, and so it, it makes a lot of sense if he intends to have a political future in the Republican party for him to, you know, take his losses and regroup and get on the bandwagon of the presumptive nominee, uh, and, and move forward. And that's exactly what he chose to do. Completely agree. Uh, let's break down a little bit of the results um, from New Hampshire. So I was just looking up the updates um, as of 845 here, 46% uh, reporting. Donald Trump has 53.2%. Nikki Haley has 45.4%. Um, John, your takes on just flat out numbers, 
what did Nikki do enough? I'm sorry. Did uh, Ambassador Haley do enough? Um, did Trump he exceeded is so far exceeding 50 percent, which on our last panel, there was some some questioning of whether that was going to be the case. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, strong showing from uh, President Trump again. I don't think it's where he wants to be, uh, but he's over 50 percent consistently. Uh, and you know, the reality is, is that the race to get enough delegates to get endorsed is just a numbers game. And if you take a majority of the delegates along the way and keep breaking that 50 percent number, that gets you across the finish line. Uh you know, when we look at elections, it's 50% plus one, and that's the number that matters. Yeah, it's uh, so until somebody finds a way to drop uh, President Trump under 50%, until they find a way to get more votes than him, uh, I think, you know, not a lot changes here. Uh, it'll be interesting that we have a little bit of a gap now moving forward uh, because of the goofiness that is Nevada's. Uh, caucus slash primary with the party and the state fighting each other. Uh, so I think what President Trump will be at the caucus on the uh, caucus straw poll on his own and uh, Haley will be on the primary ballot on her own. Uh, so we'll, you know, probably not a ton of news in there. And then I guess the Virgin Islands are the next uh, next caucus that we have coming up on February 8th. Uh, you know, that's a state that breaks uh, and tends to support much more moderate candidates. Uh, I think Rubio did really well there. Uh, if I recall, he won the Virgin Islands and Minnesota in 2016 were the two states that he won. Uh, so maybe that gives her enough of a shot in the arm to uh, continue on to Super Tuesday. Uh, but I think, you know, not a whole lot to say here. Her campaign was setting expectations and saying we're going to do better than Iowa. Uh so they did indeed not come in third place in a two-person race tonight. Uh, so improvement from Iowa. Uh, but I don't know that it's enough to shake up the race. Well, we got a Yes, she came in second in a two-person race. But if we look at the bare numbers of this, she only got, I think it was about 21% or I'm sorry, 21,000 votes in Iowa. She's right now sitting at 67,000 votes in New Hampshire. That is significantly, you know, it's literally triple the votes that she got in Iowa. So she clearly did sink a lot of time, energy, resources in New Hampshire. This is kind of the path forward for her. Obviously, you know, while we know um, they were trying to set expectations, Obviously, the goal was to to come out on top in New Hampshire, to, to have a credible path forward. And we'll chat a little bit more about that path forward shortly. You need to win some of these states. And so, as you mentioned, even Rubio had that um, a couple couple term, times ago. So um, the numbers are still coming in. It does appear that Trump's going to take probably about 10 or 11 of the delegates and Haley will get the remainder of those. Um, I want to chat through a little bit. Um, we're going to go chat through actual exit polls later, but some of the um, what we saw of, of the breakdown. Now, New Hampshire obviously is very known for the independent, the large chunk in the middle. As you guys have discussed, it kind of has broken a little bit for both Phillips and Haley in these races. Um, but I want to break down a little bit of this with less than half of those voting in the GOP primary actually identify themselves as Republicans this time around, which is a shift from 2016 when they were majority um, of folks voting in the Republican primary did identify themselves as Republicans. We also saw a lot of those um, independents breaking for Haley. One of the other telling things in this race is one in five voters, um, so only 20% have said that they made up their minds in the last week. Others had previously 
made them up. However, of those 20% who have just decided in the recent days, two thirds of those were Haley voters. So she really did put in that time and energy up until the last minute. Um, and it appears that that was kind of pulling through for her. So um, it will be, you know, we'll chat surge and stuff later, but um, it's certainly interesting to see the breakdown of how those independents come. Representative Winkler, what's your take, obviously, watching this chaos of the circus that has been the Republican nominating process here? Um, a lot has changed every day. We've seen more and more folks drop out, endorse other other candidates. Um, what's your take on the results tonight? Did you expect Trump to come out on top or were you pulling for Ambassador Haley to, to win this one? Well, look, I mean, uh, I think it would be good for the country if Ambassador Haley were the Republican nominee. Uh, I think it would be much harder for Democrats if Ambassador Haley were the nominee. I don't think she has any chance of becoming the nominee. I think this is uh, Trump's uh, primary season. He's going to very likely end up to the Republican nominee. Uh, if, I think at the numbers you just showed, um, if a lot of it, if you need a lot of independence in Republican primaries in order to prevail, you're probably not going to do very well in the end. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's uh, too bad. But uh, if you, I, what I found interesting, and I haven't seen numbers out of New Hampshire, is the uh, pr the strength of Trump in uh, non-college educated white voters and non-college educated voters generally, right? The realignment of the political parties uh, that has been underway for a long time seems to be really cemented, uh, whether it's uh, Governor DeSantis or Ambassador Haley in Iowa, those two candidates uh, did much better amongst college-educated Republicans uh, and higher-income Republicans, but there are not very many of those left uh, in the Republican Party. And the shift between the two parties along those lines, the social, socioeconomic lines uh, and education lines, is pretty stark. Uh, and I, you know, that's the appeal of Trump is sort of the uh, the uh, the, the last stand of people who feel like uh, the liberal order uh, is not working for them anymore. And so I think that's the, the battle line that's going to be drawn in this election. Uh, I think democracy, abortion, and the economy will be the issues. And we will see um, which party is able to galvanize its voters in a year where I think a lot of people are going to be pretty dispirited. I do want to also... Um take this opportunity to correct the record on the last podcast. I did mention that in recent history, no Republican has won New Hampshire and not gone on to also receive the nomination. A very dedicated listener did correct us on Twitter um, to say that in, in 2000, John McCain actually beat George W. Bush by an incredible 18 points. So that is a one recently. Thank you for keeping us honest and keeping the record straight. We really appreciate that. Not sure how I missed that, but that's all my doing. Um, just one last thing on the Republican results. Uh, Ambassador Haley did do a speech tonight. She did say this race is far from over. Obviously, you know, that is something we expect to hear, I think, from candidates on the night of. They need to go back, regroup, talk to their loved ones, talk to their campaigns, obviously, before any decisions is, are, are made, typically, of whether moving forward or dropping out. But I want to take this opportunity now to transition into um, our next topic, which is the path forward for these challengers. So again, I want to start on the Democrat side. Um, you know, it, for Susie, I'll start with you. And again, I know you are speaking as a volunteer, as a Dean Phillips supporter. This is not an official comment from the Phillips campaign or anything of that sort. But 
your take on it. Do you expect Phillips uh, to continue on at least uh, for the coming weeks and hopefully a little bit longer? Or, you know, what's your take on, on the path forward for Dean Phillips in this presidential race? I absolutely think he's going to be in there. I think he's going to be in the primaries and stay in. He has to look at it each time and he knows that and, and then make his decision um, as to what he's going to do. But right now, I would say as of tonight, because he, for, for, for this campaign and what they've wanted to do, in my opinion, they've done well. Forty uh, percent are in, tw- uh, forty, yeah, and at twenty percent, then and and it might get better. But they've done well, which will, which will give him, energize him, and all of his staff and volunteers. At, I see him absolutely staying in. He talked about till the summer. He talked about um, for sure for uh, Super Tuesday in March. Um, and then he's talked about the summer, and then he's going to have to see where it sits. This is, um, to me, I, I call it, you know, this is a movement. These are those people that, you know, he, he stood in the, uh, uh, Dean Phillips talked last night about he stood in the Trump line, which he would do. He, he, he wouldn't talk to the people who are in the Trump line because that's, that's who he is. And he said, you know, I get them. And it's what I think, Ryan Winkle, you were talking about. He said they're just, they, they felt hopeless and helpless and not heard and not helped and not cared about. And Donald Trump was very much able to get their attention and make make them trust him. And um, I think that's a piece of this. I think it's a movement for people who are sick and tired of the polarization and the extremes on both sides and what he calls angertainment. And their people are coming. I mean, it's, it's not enough numbers. It's too little too late, obviously, I think, I think. But it's a movement. It's going to go somewhere. And I think that's what he meant when he said no labels. It's going to do have to do something because people are sick and tired of it. Those people out there, the real regular folks, we've had it. Um, and so there's something big has to happen. And I, I think it's a movement for change. I'm hopeful that it's a movement for change more than anything else. Uh, as a Republican non-Trump supporter, I feel you on that movement for change and having a need for that as well. So thank you for that, Susie. Representative Winkler, what's your take on Phillip's path forward? Um, obviously, like you mentioned, this isn't a huge ton of news coming out of New Hampshire. Do you expect him to continue on? And if so, what are the results there? Well, I think we will see what happens in a uh, primary state coming up where uh, there's actually, you know, two candidates on the ballot and the president is able to uh, put a little time and resource if needed into that campaign. I think if you see those numbers drop considerably from 20 percent, there's really no point in the Phillips campaign continuing. Right. It's just Democratic voters uh, telling him that uh, it's time in this year with Trump as the likely nominee to rally around the president, rally around the reelection and go forward together. Uh, But that's going to be up to Democratic voters to send that message. Um, And in the end, I think that's probably what's going to happen in the next couple of states. Uh, And Democrats know this is, you know, this is a critically important election. I think a lot of non-Trump supporting Republicans think this is an important election. There are uh, there are things that happen when Donald Trump is on the ballot and in office that are not good for the country. Uh, both, you know, I'll give you know some credit to Republicans who would say Democrats are have Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, that is a true thing. I actually think that's 
what he wants the most is to uh, animate his supporters by getting the left fired up. Uh, and I just don't think that is good for us. I think uh, Democrats know that. And the policies that uh, we've seen outside of tax cuts from the Trump administration were all pretty uh, disastrous. And in fact, from a uh, economic standpoint, uh, contributed as much to inflation as anything that President Biden has done. So I, I really think Democrats are going to be focused on winning this election and not distracted by a candidate like Dean Phillips going forward. Um, biggest question, anybody worried about Marianne Williamson? No? Doesn't land? Okay. I mean, <laughs> for her, but not about her. Perfect. Uh, uh, my worry is is about uh, Cornell West and Jill Stein, the third party. As a Democrat, I mean, those folks are going to take votes away from, and, and if it's the, as close as we think, that could be a real problem. Now, I want to give my uh, Republican panelists also a great opportunity to respond what they think um, about a, a Biden presidency um, and what another four years of that would look like. But I want to start with the path forward for challengers and, and looking at the race with Donald Trump still um, in the winner's seat. Uh, Michael, I want to start with you on this one. Uh, yes, I was not I did not vote for Trump in 16 and 20. I've never been never been a Trump supporter. And the, the problem that I have with what's going on right now is, is there a path for Trump to win in November? And I think that Republicans would have a better opportunity to win and have some electoral success in November if Ambassador Haley was the candidate. And so what I struggle with is setting aside everything else uh, that's a criticism of Trump, focusing just on his ability to help Republicans down ballot and help Republicans win in close races. I just don't see any electoral evidence that Donald Trump is a net is an asset to Republicans across the country, particularly in Minnesota. And it's something that we've talked about before, Becky, is is looking for Republicans to win in 2024. Does Donald Trump help or hurt Republicans by being the candidate in Minnesota? And just thinking locally, that's that's what I struggle with very much with Trump's candidacy is is on paper. Um, it's very clear that Nikki Haley is a stronger candidate and we're, we're making it in some ways, we're making it very easy for the Democrats by Republicans putting forth Donald Trump. And so that's the concern I have. That's like the lens that I look through. And I look forward to hearing what others think about that. Um, John, I want to start with you and kind of looking at the Haley um, Trump side of things. Obviously, again, Haley put a lot into New Hampshire coming up eh, relatively shy of 50 percent. Does, does she have enough momentum to get her to through the chaos in Nevada into South Carolina? What does the next couple of weeks look like? Do you expect her to to go the long haul here or what do you think? Yeah, if for no other reason that uh, South Carolina is coming up and the campaign might as well get her home. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think looking at the results, uh, there's been a lot of chatter all the way back to 2015 and hand wringing, uh, particularly amongst kind of the chattering class and uh, a lot of the donor class about how you needed to go head to head with Trump in these primaries, uh, that it needed to be a binary choice. Uh, back in 2016, it was, oh, Kasich and Rubio and Cruz are splitting the anti-Trump vote. And if we just had one person, then, uh, you know, we would beat Trump. And then, you know, this time you've got your chances. Heads up, uh, one versus one. Uh, and I think that that's going to be an enticing thing that'll uh, keep her campaign fueled. Uh, so I think that she's in, uh, at least until South Carolina, but probably, uh, a little bit beyond, 
Uh, I don't know that uh, at this point she has a particularly bright future uh, past this campaign uh, looking ahead if it doesn't go her way. Uh, so I don't know that she kind of has those same calculations that Governor DeSantis had. Uh, what Governor DeSantis is 45. He's a uh, current incumbent governor in a uh, you know, very large Republican state. Uh, I think he sees a future for himself. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, Representative Hudson talked about those considerations. Uh, it's a little bit interesting that he, uh, you know, God, DeSantis almost seemed like he was more negative on Trump today now that he's not in the race than he uh, was the entire campaign uh, running against him when he was talking about uh, his concerns about uh, President Trump's strengths as a candidate. Uh, but to the point about uh, you know, candidate strength that Michael brought up, uh, yeah, I think that I would say uh, Congressman Phillips would be a stronger uh, Democratic candidate and more difficult to beat than uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I think that Nikki Haley would be a stronger Republican candidate. Uh, and when it comes down to it, uh, we do. We have two uh, deeply unpopular uh, candidates who are likely to be the major party's nominees. Uh, and frankly, they're the only two who I could make a case for which one of them is going to lose to the other one. Uh, I don't know which one wins, but they could both lose. Uh, so I don't know how that shakes out. Uh, there was a new Harris uh, uh, Harvard poll out yesterday uh, that had Donald Trump winning significantly uh, against Joe Biden. Uh, and I think Democrats are starting to realize that uh, you know, Donald Trump is not a pushover when he is on the ballot. He will run a serious campaign. Uh, he runs hard. He runs and says what he needs to say. Uh, he runs a very aggressive campaign and has surrounded himself with professionals. Uh, this is not kind of the early 2015, 2016 ragtag team that agreed to work for him. Uh, he's got pros on that team. Uh, and so we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, there's certainly some of the legal issues that are shaking out, uh, but again, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I think, are the only two who could find a way to lose to one another. John, as somebody who works uh, on some of those down ballot races or in you know other areas, not on the presidential level, what is your take on what Michael was saying? Does this help hurt down ballot? What's your thought? Yeah, I think when it comes to running races uh, at the local level, we need to be focused on our races and running our campaigns. Uh, you know, what folks are going to have a chance to decide about is a DFL party that squandered a $17 billion surplus that is building a half billion dollar office building for politicians. Uh, and that has spent us into a projected structural deficit. Uh, you know, we are, uh, absolutely on the wrong path. We need balance back in St. Paul. Uh, I think that the Democrats made a calculated decision, uh, and I understand it. Uh, when they had one-party control in 2013 and 14, I think there were some things that they felt were left on the table, uh, and nobody wanted to leave anything on the table this time. Uh, I understand uh, kind of that impulse, uh, but I think it's going to come back to bite them. Uh, that being said, uh, Republicans did okay when uh, Donald Trump was on the ballot. We held the state Senate uh, in 2020. Uh, in 2016, we expanded the House majority. Uh, you know, it's 
not necessarily a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump is uh, the killer that I think people want to make him out to be. Uh, and I've said it before, but if Scott Jensen had merely done as poorly uh, in the metro area as Donald Trump, uh, we would have one, maybe two statewide elected officials and likely have both of the uh, chambers of the legislature. Uh, but the reality was, is that he ran, what, four, pi- uh, four points worse than Donald Trump in Hennepin County. He ran worse in Washington and Anoka and uh, Scott. The only place that he was at parity was Carver County. Uh, and so I don't know that, uh, yeah, I don't know that Donald Trump is an asset, but I don't know that he is, uh, the anchor that a lot of people want to, uh, portray him as. You got to tell him. Sorry. Uh, my bad. I've been only doing this for over a year. You'd think I'd figure out the mute button. Um, Rep- Representative Hudson, I want to go to you next. Um, first, to get your take, you know, you, as you mentioned, were, were one that were kind of thinking DeSantis should get out before New Hampshire. You called that one. What's your thought on Haley's path forward? Does she have a path forward? Um, and then, of course, I want to get your input as somebody who is down ballot on a state legislative um race here up this next cycle want to get your take on on the trump helping or hurting if he is the nominee which it appears that's the case those two questions really are interconnected um so the the path forward for haley i'll i'll circle back around to but then in terms of the effect of trump being at the top of the ticket for those of us who are down ballot it very much depends on the context right so um, for instance, me in Wright County, 6535 district, uh, where you drive around county roads and you see Trump signs everywhere, not going to be a problem, right? Uh, you get over to Andrew Myers district, um, back over around Lake Minnetonka, uh, he's going to be getting asked about what he thinks about the latest thing that Trump said at every time he's in the public light, right? And so for candidates like that, it's going to be much more frustrating to to try and overcome or step out from underneath the Trump shadow. But I do agree with John's analysis broadly that uh, local politics is local and that, you know, you look historically and the legislative candidates tend to be at the top of the list of percentage of the vote when all the votes are counted. Um, if, if you're not outperforming the top of the ticket, then you probably aren't working very hard in your district because people know who you are, your familiar face, or familiar name. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge to have Trump on the ballot. Now, would I have preferred the calmer waters um, of another candidate? Absolutely. That's why I was a DeSantis supporter. Um, what's interesting about Nikki Haley staying in the race and her potential path forward is that it's not like the Phillips Biden matchup because there you're kind of having like just this clean race of which guy would you prefer, which candidate would you prefer on the Republican side? You've got all this baggage of the indictments and the legal issues and the ballot challenges is even going to be on the ballot in some States and, and whatnot. And so for Haley and for the people who are just staunchly don't want Trump and are, are going to, kick and scream all the way to the general about it. The strategy would seem to be keep her alive and in the race as a contingency plan for if Trump, for whatever reason is 
incapacitated and unable to continue because he's literally not free right? or something along those lines or not on the ballot in certain states. And so it's a much more dynamic situation where if, if you're going around fundraising for uh, Nikki Haley, I have to imagine that one of the selling points that you're offering is we've got to have somebody who is viable and has some kind of an operation going in the event that he can't continue. You know, that's a really interesting take that we haven't discussed that much, or also makes me think that there is something also to just having somebody else on in the Republican race or in the Democrat race has more opportunity. You have more opportunities to get press. You have more opportunities to get in front of donors and get folks in um, on your side, supporting your race. And so it will be interesting. I think that is a, is a good take. I, I would love to have a contingency plan. Um, I don't know. Should he be put behind bars? Who knows what's going to happen? But that brings me to a really great next part of our conversation, the exit polls. So we spoke after Iowa of the crazy bonkers results, especially when it came to um, President Donald Trump being fit um, to be president if he is convicted of a crime. So now as a reminder, in New Hampshire, I'm sorry, in Iowa, um, exit polls said from Republican Iowa caucus attendees said 65% of them said, yes, he is fit to be president if he's convicted of a crime. Only 31% said no. In New Hampshire, 50% said, yes, he is fit. 47% said no. Um, however, 86% of the Trump supporters in New Hampshire did also say he is still fit. Any takes from anybody on President Donald Trump being fit for office if he is convicted of a crime and the thoughts of that from Republican primary voters? If I go ahead, Walter, <laughs> I can certainly give you something of a of an inside peek into the mindset of Republican voters when it comes to this issue. And, and I think that I, I'm going to attempt to offer some translation services here because I know that Democrats see this very differently than Republicans do. Um, and what it comes down to is, I, th I think for Democrats and potentially independents as well, when they consider the phrase criminal conviction, they think of it in terms that all of us would have thought of it of a few years back. Um, but in recent years, th there's this growing perception of political corruption in the justice system, particularly when it comes to presidential politics involving Donald Trump, to where a, a criminal conviction would not be seen as such by a lot of Republican voters and perhaps a decent chunk of independence as well, although I doubt a plurality. Um, and so the, I think the reason why you might not get the kind of reaction you might otherwise expect from a criminal conviction in terms of voters shying away from Trump is because they're not going to see it as an actual legitimate conviction. They're going to see it as political gamesmanship and the system being rigged and all of the, these things that we hear him talk about all the time. For a lot of people, that's what they firmly believe. Yeah, I think that's exactly what worries Democrats the most is the concept of the big lie that what you saw on January 6th is not what you saw, what you what, uh, you know, uh, the justice system is bringing for evidence is not actual evidence. And it's using basically distrust of institutions for a political advantage that is helpful to one person, but further damages 
our understanding of how our institutions work and really undermining the basic democratic norms, the basic constitutional structures that we have in this country that are uh, historically something that uh, presidents of both parties and former presidents of both parties respected. Um, and I really think um, that is the danger. It's not uh, to me whether he's convicted of a crime or not. It is what will Donald Trump destroy in order to avoid taking responsibility for ever having done anything wrong. And that level of selfishness, uh, the level of, I mean, to me, lack of patriotism, a lack of support for the institutions of the country are the biggest indictment of him, not any particular court case. And, And by contrast, I would say that Republican voters tend to view those institutions as already destroyed. So it, it seems as though so from the Democrat the perspective, what's, I'm sorry, I didn't. I, I said, so does the far left, the far left and the far okay. right both say our institutions are, are broken beyond repair and need to be destroyed. And both are dangerous. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that the, and both of those sides of the equation seem to have a controlling interest in outcomes. So we'll see where things go with this. The the one thing I will say regarding um, kind of the thought process on where voters are at and why there's so much persistent support for Trump in spite of all of the arguments as to why it should be someone else. You know, I think of that, that experiment that we've can all probably recall hearing about at some point where uh, kids offered two cookies, if they're willing to wait an hour or one cookie now, and almost always they pick the cookie now. I kind of feel like that's what's going on with Republican voters right now, where you can make every rational argument you want as to why it's dangerous for whatever your premise or rationale is um, to have Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, whether it's the legal issues or, or whatever, whatever else the case may be. Uh, but there's, there's just so much emotionally tied into what he represents, which is a defiance of the status quo and a defiance of the, the, the perceived corruption in all of our institutions that they're going to stand by him no matter what. And the question is whether or not that conviction uh, can keep a candidacy viable through to November, I guess we'll see. Yeah. The only thing that I would uh, add in this, and it goes back to that Harvard Harris poll that I mentioned, uh, they did ask a similar question in a, I think it was a national survey of uh, approximately 2,400 people. Uh, and what they found was that it depends on which crime you're asking about uh, with, with regard to the conviction. And uh, yeah, I think that it, is sometimes easy to forget that President Trump is facing numerous charges from uh, various jurisdictions, uh, ranging from you know all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, I think the classified uh, hand or handling of classified documents uh, appears to be a little bit lower on voters' minds than uh, whether or not he incited an insurrection uh, in the January sixth investigation uh, and those uh, charges that are coming out of. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in D.C., the special counsel there. Uh, And what was very interesting to me is that there were a majority of voters who thought that Donald Trump had broken the law and a majority were willing to vote for him. So he was beating Biden. I think he had 51%, but 50 you know, 53% thought that he had committed some crimes. So there's some overlap there. I'd like to meet the uh, voters who said he did some crimes, but I'm going to vote for him. Uh, And then 
where you saw that ballot move is on uh, was on the January 6th case. Uh, and if he's convicted of that, I think he dropped down into the mid 40s. Uh, so, you know, it's always tough trying to glean too much from polls because, you know, a lot of times voters hear the question that they want to hear and answer the question that they want to answer. Uh, it's a lot like debating. Uh, just because somebody asks a question doesn't mean that that's the question that you have to answer. Uh, so, yeah, they could be, uh, you know, inserting their own uh, crime uh, that they would be okay with him having been convicted of. Uh, you know, but it's very similar. If you do, you know, a generic ballot test, right? If you say, would you rather vote for the Republican or for the Democrat? You know, if the Republicans imagine the best Republican in the world and the Democrats imagine the best Democrat in the world and the independents, uh, you know, imagine the best of both. And uh, as soon as you have to make real world decisions and start to get uh, presented some facts, I think those things change a little bit. Uh, and that's you know what was really interesting to me in that Harvard poll is uh, once they specified which crime, uh, you saw uh, President Trump's numbers drop significantly. Um, I want to move into a little bit more of our exit, a couple more points in the exit polls. Um, one thing that we often hear in in whether it's exit polls or just a, a phone call poll, push poll, whatever it looks like, is the the question. What do you think? Um, do you think you are better today than you were 10 years ago? Are you going to be better in 10 years than you are today? When asked of whether voters think that life for the next generation is going to be better or worse than it is today, um, majority of voters do think it's actually going to be worse than it is today. And that is something that is uh, is a flip that we have seen in, in recent, um, I don't know, year or two. Um, typically, I, I think most people do expect things to get better. They hope things to get better. Susie, as somebody who's been working on the campaign trail um, for the last couple of years as a volunteer, what is your take talking to voters um, with a little bit more of this pessimistic point of view than we've had in the past? I think it's exactly what you said, Becky, <clears throat> that people are, uh, it's negative. It's negative. It's it's the hopeless. I. Um, I just want to say that it's it's pretty sad because they they people they know they say there there's two weak candidates. It's really what Walter said, you know that. Um, I mean, my vision and my my dream would be to have Nikki Haley and Dean Phillips. I think that's an alive, wonderful, <laughs> healthy uh, race. And so what they're saying is they kind of don't know where to turn. They're when I've been in New Hampshire and talking and talking to all these people, they're so angry. There's, they don't know where to go. They don't really want to vote. Um, Biden, we hear Biden's too old. Donald Trump is corrupt. We don't hear ever hear that Donald Trump is old, which is very interesting. I think his energy, whatever you want to say is, and he's there everywhere. It, it, we forget, but everything around Biden is, well, he's too old. And, and mostly in New Hampshire, when we shook hands, it was, good. There's somebody else. You mean we have another choice just because, and they don't bad mouth. Democrats aren't saying those that, that don't want him to run, um, that he's been a bad president. My God, I think he's been, it was wonderful for what we needed. And it's, um, it's just sad that he won't pass the, pass the torch on. And so I, I do not see, um, they're sad. It's dark kind of, they, they're staying home. Um, they're saying some of them they're not going to vote. 
there's a lot of disgruntled Democrats and there's a lot of disgruntled Republicans. We're really the same right there in the middle. If you take away the extremes, we're these same disgruntled, unhappy people who are sick and tired of the whole, the games and, um, and everything. And that's really what I'm hearing. It's not optimistic. Representative Winkler, what's your take? Well, I think there's a big gap between what statistics show about how the country's doing and how people feel about it. Uh, and since we're in a democracy, it's the voters' feelings about it that matter, not the statistics. Um, I think that the, I, I think it's easy to think of the pandemic and the collective trauma of a pandemic as being in the rearview mirror and behind us, but those effects linger on psychologically. If you look at past uh, pandemic events, uh, the psychological impact continues on for years. I think that does significantly affect how people feel about things. Um, and I think that, you know, I think inflation is likely in the rearview mirror. Uh, I think voters are going to start to forget about inflation. I think the job numbers are still strong. The economy is strong. Uh, Americans are safer uh, on average than they were a couple of years ago. Uh, and so things are moving in the right direction. The question I think for this election is, will voters start to feel it and believe it by the time November rolls around and reward Joe Biden with another term? Uh, or will this sense of hopelessness or bad, wrong direction continue? I think it will be hard. I think collectively, uh, you know, our, our media, our social media, it's so easy to dwell on all the negatives and it invades every minute of every day. Politics is way too omnipresent in our lives. Uh, every decision that we make, every every driver we see on the highway, everything that we do in our daily lives and our culture seems to be infected by this partisan divide. And I think people are exhausted and demoralized by that. Uh, and it will take some time for us to get past that. But for this election, I think uh, people are going to have to make a choice on some pretty uh, close to the heart issues like uh, abortion, about the, the treatment of the country by the former president, and I think uh, how people feel about the economy and where it's going. Um, if you are interested in hearing more conversations about the frustration of those in the middle, our podcast this week, we had Shannon Watson on from Majority in the Middle, where we talked about just that. So go check that out. But I want to, um, I, I Representative it is very clear why you are in the line of work you do, because as I listen to you, I hear all the little talking points that that I would want to hear if you were somebody, if if you were if I was working for you and and you were um, if I was able to get that stuff in front of you, you did a really good job. And the one question I want to follow up on, um, and actually I want to throw it over to Representative Hudson here, um, you spoke about the pandemic and about some of the economic woes that we went through that. Um, you you stated inflation is is over the economy is rebounding. I think there are some differencing of opinions on that. Um, in particular, one of the kind of sub notes under this exit polls and this question was six out of ten voters think that their family finances are holding steady, but few feel like they're getting ahead. And I think that's kind of what you mentioned that what we feel and what we see, regardless of what's going on in the grander scheme, is really what matters. And so even if we are able to pay our bills, few people feel like they're, you know, stocking back up their 401ks and their savings accounts and really having that opportunity. Um, with that, for Republican primary voters, economy just like in Iowa was the number one one um, issue, top most important issue for 
for voters here, immigration was first, economy and second, 34 and 31 per percentage points respectively. Foreign policy in New Hampshire did come in third, which was a surprise to me, with 17% and abortion on the Republican side came in at fourth, which we did talk to about in Iowa. We kind of expected it to be a little bit higher. Winkler, or Representative Winkler, you mentioned that on the Democrat side. But Representative Hudson, on the economic side, this is something that I think from my conversations, whether with guests on the show or friends and family, um, is, I think my conversations with Republicans still have a little bit more anxiety about the uncertainty of the economy and what we're facing than Democrats who feel like it is evening out and rebounding a little bit. What's your take on that and how um, the voters are feeling with that and how that brings forward as a top priority issue for 2024 and beyond? I think the reason why statistics don't seem to have a very strong impact on people's sentiments regarding the strength of the economy is because they're relying upon their own contextual experience of what it is that they're seeing and feeling and the experience that they're having when they go to the grocery store or when they sit down at the kitchen table to, to pay their taxes or pay their bills. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about when, when I speak with people is that it, it very much seems as though people are struggling to not show that they are struggling. That's the way that I put it. And every time I say that, I get nods all throughout the room. Um, because people recognize that it, it, there's this effort to try to maintain the veneer that everything's fine. And you see that manifest in the increase in consumer debt, people more and more relying upon their credit cards as opposed to their savings or their bank account to be able to put food on the table and just meet basic needs. Um, and that, of course, is completely unsustainable. That's not going to last at some point. You're, you're not going to be able to move forward with that anymore. And so it creates this kind of anxiety where, you know, maybe people aren't willing to express it because there's a certain degree of just a sense of privacy and wanting to keep your your dirty laundry concealed but in their hearts in their minds it's very much top of mind that they're not having a great time and they don't have a lot of hope about where things are going um, moving forward in the future and you know again looking at those statistics there's this thing called the endpoint fallacy where you know it very much depends on where you start measuring and where you stop measuring as to what the trend seems to be um, and you know just anecdotally, you, you can't even go to McDonald's and get a value meal without it being double digits anymore. I mean, I, I remember when I, there was a period of time where I started having some sticker shock about going to a fast food place, a Chipotle or whatever, and seeing the, these double digit prices for things and thinking, man, that's really expensive. And eventually I came to realize that's the way it is everywhere. Like literally everywhere you go, if you're going to get a meal, um, you're paying often twice what you were, however many, not that many years ago. Um, to get the same amount of food and, you know, people's uh, uh, wages and their uh, ability to live their income has not necessarily kept pace with that. And so I think that's what a lot of people are feeling. And, and you couple that with the sense that the people who are in charge, the, the elected officials aren't, don't really have an ear for it um, and don't really uh, feel that sort of domestic pressure that is very evident at the kitchen table and that they're more concerned about um, spending an $18 billion surplus, raising $10 billion worth of taxes, increasing the state budget by 40%. You know, things they see that in a context of feeling like things are tight at home and they ask themselves the question, when are we going to get a break? I, and I would like to just add a, a point to what I was saying before. Uh, 
while inflation is down, I think in the economy as in the uh, immediate sense will be uh, in a better place and people will feel it more. Big ticket items like uh, housing affordability uh, seems increasingly far away from uh, people's ability to to um, uh, afford uh, jobs that actually pay enough to advance in your career by getting additional education that you know doesn't necessarily have to be a four year degree, but being able to get ahead, being able to afford to raise kids, the middle class life uh, that we think of as the the kind of birthright to pass down to another generation or to to raise your kids to be able to earn their way into it, that sense of a, uh, attainability, I think, is largely missing. And I don't think that is a partisan difference or a cyclical economic difference. I think that is a a set of challenges that um, both parties, for different reasons, have really failed to adequately dive into and have a prescription for or even talk about the problem enough. The big ticket items, healthcare, education, housing, those are really uh, hard for a lot of people to afford, much less being able to work your way a- up into a, a better job, a better career. It just feels farther and farther away for people. Um, I want to be mindful. We are coming up here just on an hour. Um, I love a conversation here that we started discussing the results of the primary and got into discussing, you know, kitchen table issues here. Uh, I really appreciate all of your time with us tonight and your input. It's always fascinating when we can get four people with four different ways of looking at things from four different backgrounds. I mean, I'm I'm including the four panelists. There's obviously six of us here. I can count. Um, but thank you all for being here. Um, before we get to through our closing, I want to go around real quick. Anybody have any final last words? Susie, John, you didn't chime in on the economy issues, but if you have any last words, Representative Hudson or Winkler, anything before we before we wrap up here? Economics, the uh, the interviews and the people we met in town halls in New Hampshire, it was, we didn't say, but the economy is doing well. Look at, you know, they're thinking of the indicators that we all look at. And they'd look at us and say, well, that has nothing to do with me. I can't afford, and they would just rant about prices and childcare and, and food. And I mean, I, we can't, do you know, and the people who would talk to us about it, they're, they're, it, it the affordability issue. So I think, Ryan, Ryan, you hit right on that. That's all. Thank you so much. Um, Michael, I'll turn it over to you before I close us out. I just wanted to say uh, thank you all for participating. You know, it's really important that these type of discussions happen. And we're in a hyper-partisan time right now. And to get this group of people to come together on a, on a Tuesday night uh, is, is just remarkable to me. I just want to thank you all for taking time, being so responsive today, and just participating in the discussion. I really enjoyed just sitting back and listening. And I heard, learned a lot just from hearing the discussion tonight. But I just wanted to just impart upon all of you just how much I appreciate you all just participating and having this discussion. You guys have been great. And that's a good representative of the type of discussions we need to have. And I'm just proud of you all. I just wanted to say thank you for for coming on tonight. And I also want to compliment my co-host, Becky. She just navigated a live of podcasts with six guests and managed it with just an incredible a grace and, and just did a fantastic job. And I just want to compliment her and, and all of you for participating. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you, Michael, uh, for again, doing the tech side because you're the only reason we're actually all here. So thank you for that. Um, well, we do want to thank everyone who joined us live following the closing of the New Hampshire polls. And of course, thank you to everybody who tuned in after the fact. We appreciate the support for the breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or the platform where you listen. You can also review our what on our website bbbreakpod.com. Follow us on Twitter, X at bbbreakpod. And the breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky will return again next week. Thanks. Bye.